Good morning. If you want to go ahead and uh, open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, we're going to be looking at chapter 11, verses 15 through 19. That's Mark 11, 15 through 19. Uh, and just real quick, I know we have uh, some visitors here with us. Whenever we confess that we believe in the uh, Catholic Church, that means universal. Uh, we don't affirm the Roman Catholic Church as an actual church at all uh, because of their heresies and blasphemies. Uh, but anyhow, uh, Mark chapter 11, verses 15 through 19. Uh, we're continuing our study of the Gospel of Mark, and this morning we come to the portion of Mark's Gospel that is often referred to as the cleansing of the temple. Um, now, the text before us is pretty unique, and I say that because in this text, we see our Lord Jesus Christ openly angry, openly angry, and actually using violent force. Um, now, I'm not saying that our Lord beat anyone to a pulp or anything like that in, in this passage, uh, but this account is one of the only times in his life that we are told that Jesus Christ used force, that he became, in some regards, physically violent. In this passage that we're going to read here in a few minutes, our Lord Jesus drives some people out of the temple. He flips tables and flips chairs. This text is truly extraordinary for that reason. Jesus is angry here. But, but what angered him? What angered him so much? What produced such righteous indignation in our Lord, who is so characteristically patient and, and mild and, and calm? Here's your answer. God's worship was being profaned. That's what provoked him. The worship of God was being profaned. The temple was being profaned. God was being disrespected. And his worship, the worship of God, was being made a mockery of. And our Lord will not tolerate that. He cannot and he will not. The, the text before us is about the judgment that was soon to fall upon the Jews and the temple because of their false and hypocritical religion that had actually become the norm in that day. Uh, remember, think with me back to last week's sermon. Uh, this event in the temple was tied directly to the cursing of the fig tree that we studied last week, right? Remember I said Mark sandwiched this text, right? You have the cursing of the fig tree, and then the next text is what we're on this week, the cleansing of the temple, and then he finishes with the cursing of the fig tree again. And remember that the fig tree... Is, is symbolic of the nation of Israel throughout the Old Testament, right? So the cursing of the fig tree was a prophetic object lesson from Jesus. Uh, it was a sign or a symbol of the wrath of God that was going to fall upon Israel, right? Or apostate Judaism. Uh, judgment was going to come upon them because they thought so little of God while claiming to worship him. Because they had all these covenantal privileges by being the children of Abraham, but had no fruit of faith. As Jesus said in Mark chapter 7, God's name was on their lips, but their hearts were far from him. So in light of this, and this is not original to me, but I, I think this is fair, instead of calling this text the cleansing of the temple, maybe we should call it the condemnation of the temple. Because that's what this is. Christ is condemning the temple and those who worship there in this text. It's interesting to note also in passing that this is actually the second time that our Lord drove people out of the temple and flipped tables over. The second time. Um, in John chapter 2, in John's gospel, we read, we read that Jesus did this at the beginning of his ministry. Um, so his earthly ministry is somewhat bookended with the events of cleansing the temple. He did it at the beginning and then right before his death. Um, and some the theologians have seen great significance here that I want to draw your attention to briefly, and maybe it will help you uh, set the stage for, for this text. Uh, you see, in the Old Testament, you can read this in the book of Leviticus, I believe, Leviticus or Deuteronomy, um, when, a f when a physical house was diseased, when it had some kind of mold growing in it, right, it was diseased, it was unclean. And you would go to the priest, and the priest would come and, and, and check everything out and try to remedy the problem, right? He would try to cleanse the house. And then the priest would come back a second time to inspect the house and see if the uncleanness was still there, or if it was going away gradually, or if it was completely gone, right? And if, and if the uncleanness wasn't going away or wasn't gone, if it was just as he left it the first time, then the house had to be torn down completely. And so we see that our Lord Jesus, who is the great high priest of God's people, goes to the temple once at the beginning of his ministry to inspect things 
and to cleanse it and rid it of uncleanness. And then he goes back a second time at the end of his ministry, and what does he find? The same uncleanness, the same wickedness. And so it is now time for the house to be torn down and for another one, a new temple, to take its place. Brothers and sisters, the text before us is about how serious God is concerning worship. It's about how the Lord judges false worship and false worshipers. It's about how zealous that God is for his glory. And it's about how God is looking for true worshipers who love and honor him from the heart. May God help us to see these things as we look to his word together this morning. Uh, Now, with that said, if you would and are able, please stand with me now for the reading of the inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of God. Mark chapter 11, verses 15 through 19. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers." And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that instructs, rebukes, exhorts, and encourages us. Your your word is truth, and we need the truth. So we ask now that you would be merciful to us and teach us in the heart By your spirit, cause your word to take root in us so that we would repent where we need to, be encouraged where we need it, and get a glimpse of who you are. Please open our minds to understand and our hearts to receive what you have revealed to us in the word. Have mercy on us, we pray. We ask for this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, Now, in in order to get the richness of this text, I think we need to have some historical context here. And and, and so the first decent bit of this sermon is going to be about setting, or rather, uh, uh, the setting of our passage. It's going to be about the temple. And not just the temple in the abstract, but really what was going on in the temple in Jesus' day and why. So some background here. First, the temple was the centerpiece of Jewish religion. God had structured things that way. It it, it was by God's own design that he revealed to Moses in the Old Testament. In the wilderness, the temple was portable, and it was called the tabernacle. And it was the place where God met with his people, right? God's dwelling place. It it uh, It was the place where the most formal form of God's worship took place. It's where the priests would offer sacrifice on behalf of God's people. It's in its courts, The people were to be instructed in the word of God. Prayers were to be offered there. Praises and singing was to happen there. The Levites would play their instruments there, right? The tabernacle was the place of worship. It was the holy place. And then later we get into the Old Testament and we see uh, that God decided to place his house of worship in Jerusalem. And it would no longer be a portable tabernacle, but would be a permanent fixture, right? It would be a temple. And David's son, King Solomon, built the first temple. And it was a glorious thing to behold. Physically, it was beautiful, a beautiful structure. And then when the temple was finished, God filled the place with the cloud of his glory. And the cloud was so thick that the priests couldn't enter the building, right? God dwells here. Again, this is a glorious place. God's personal presence. We're not denying the omnipresence of God. He is everywhere, but he promised in a special, particular way that he would dwell in this place in the Holy of Holies. It's a glorious place. Again, God's special presence is there. And so, and this is kind of foreign to us because we're Christians and we don't have any such place. This building is not intrinsically holy, right? What we do here makes this place, for while we're gathered here, a holy place. But this building is not intrinsically holy. So what I'm getting ready to say is, is, is going to sound a little bit strange to Christian ears. The temple was the holiest place in the entire world. Like, that building was holy. God made it that way. God sanctified it. He blessed it. He set it apart from all the other places in the world. And so this structure, the temple, was literally holy. The holiest place in the entire world. 
Again, this is where worship was to happen, where sacrifices happened, where God meets with his people. The temple was also the place where all Jewish males were commanded to appear before the Lord a few times a year. Again, what I want you to get into your head, or you're not going to get the gravity of what's going on in our text in Mark, is that the temple was not just any building. It wasn't even just a special building. It was the building. right? It was holy because God had sanctified it. There was nowhere else in the world like it. You were not allowed to offer sacrifices anywhere but the temple once the temple had been erected. Right? This place is unique. But as you know, for all of its glory, the first temple was destroyed when the Jews were taken off into exile. Because of their sin and idolatry, because of their refusal to repent and turn to the Lord, God punished Israel. And when the Gentiles came in to wreak havoc on Israel, they destroyed the temple. They burned it down. Right? God permitted his temple to be destroyed as a judgment on Israel because so many of the Jews were living so wickedly but trusted in the temple. Oh, we have the temple. God will never judge us. He would never tear down his own temple. Guess again. Yes, he will. So he judged them, and the temple was destroyed. But when God brought the Jews back from exile, the temple was rebuilt under the uh, oversight of Zerubbabel. You can read about that in the, some of the minor prophets. Um, and so there was a second temple. And this second temple wasn't nearly as physically glorious as the first, but it was still the most holy place on earth. Okay, again, holiest place on earth. And then later on in history, um, there was an undertaking to make the second temple more glorious. And so a lot of, lot of construction was done. Uh, it, the st- construction was still going on in Jesus' day. And this construction to make the temple huge and beautiful and glorious actually wouldn't be uh, finished until 66 A.D., Uh, And then the temple was actually destroyed four years after that, as Christ predicted in the Olivet Discourse. Um, So, again, this construction is going on in Jesus' day, but it's almost finished, right? It's a huge, beautiful place, like like seven wonders of the world, beautiful. Historians write about it that weren't even Jews and say there's no building that rivals the temple in Jerusalem, right? And it was, again, huge, humongous. And there were these courts. There were three courts that went around the temple itself in concentric squares, Right? And these courts were for worship and assembly. Uh, and and they, were, they, they became considered part of the temple itself because they were part of the temple complex. Right? So these courts are considered holy. And the most outer court was called the court of the Gentiles. This was the only place that Gentile worshipers could go. They couldn't go any further into the temple complex or they would be executed. Right? There were signs put up everywhere. By the way, if you're ever curious what Paul meant by the dividing wall of hostility in Ephesians 2... It's probably that, the wall that kept the Gentiles from coming any closer to God that Christ has done away with to make one new man. Anyway, that's an aside there. But that's that wall, this, this dividing wall that kept the Jews and Gentiles separate. The Gentiles couldn't go anywhere but the court of Gentiles. The second court was the court of women. Right? And this was the closest that Jewish women could go into the temple there in the second court. And then the closest court to the temple was the court of Israel or the court of the men. And this is where circumcised males could go to worship. And at the center of all these courts was the literal temple itself, where only the Levites could go, where only the priests could go. This is where the sacrifices were made, where the incense was offered, and all the other priestly work was done. Now, why do I mention these courts? I kind of spent a lot of time on that. I, I mention these courts because they're really important to our text this morning. And that's because what happened here in our passage happened in the court of the Gentiles. Right? And we know that. You're saying, where does it say that in the text? So it doesn't. But we know that because Mark tells us that buying and selling was going on in the temple. And we know from historical records that this happened only in the court of the Gentiles. Right? So that, that's where we're at here. You see, at some point during Jesus' time on earth, the high priest, probably just a few years ago prior to our text here, the high priest had decided that it was a good idea to put a marketplace in the court of the Gentiles. But why, right? That seems kind of weird. Why would he do that? Well, when worshipers came to the temple, they came to make sacrifices, obviously, especially in times like Passover, which is the time period of our text. And so the worshipers, what do they need? They need an animal. They need an animal to present. More than that, they would need saw oil or a few other things, depending on what other sacrifices that they'd be offering. And so since many worshipers came a really far distance away, it just made sense for them to buy what they needed for their sacrifices in Jerusalem instead of trying to haul it one or 200 miles or even more than that, right? So you just buy it once you get to Jerusalem. 
Uh, more than that, uh, consider this. The animal that you're offering as a sacrifice has to be spotless and without blemish and so fit for sacrifice. So if anything happens to your lamb on this 200-mile journey that you took, it's worthless now. And you have to buy one anyway once you get to Jerusalem. So people just said, we'll buy one when we get there. Right? Makes sense. It just, made, it just makes sense to buy what you need in Jerusalem. But not just animals and things for sacrifices, uh, but you can read in Exodus chapter 30 that males 20 and older had to give a temple tax. I believe it's chapter 30, verse 13 of Exodus. And since Roman coins had images on them or idolatrous phrases talking about the emperor being God, Roman coins were not fit for temple use. See, there had to be money changing. Right? There had to be money changing. You would change your Roman money for coins that don't have any images or phrases on them. Why? So that they would be fit to present to God in the temple for your tax. So there was a legitimate need for exchanging money because Rome ran everything and their coins were everywhere throughout the empire. Now let, let's be clear about something. This is important. There was nothing intrinsically wrong with selling things for sacrifices or exchanging money. There's nothing wrong with that. These, were actually, these things were necessary Right? When you came to the temple, you needed to exchange your money, and you needed to get a sacrifice. You needed to buy the animal and all the other stuff. The real problem was threefold, and, and, and bear with me, the third one's the worst. We're going we're gonna to start with the first one, though. Three problems with this. The first was price gouging. It was not uncommon for the animals to be between four to 16 times more expensive at the temple than anywhere else. If you could buy a dove for 25 cents in your hometown, you bought it for $4 at the temple. Four to 16 times more expensive. And the money changers at the temple would charge something like 12% for their services. I mean, this is obscene. Right? I mean, this is just raw greed. This is making merchandise of other people. Right? This is stealing from them with such exorbitant prices for things that they need. So price gouging was a problem. The second problem with all of this is corruption. The high priest owned this marketplace. Uh, some historians actually referred to it as the marketplace of Annas. Because Annas was the guy who owned it. He was the priest who owned it. And if you wanted to sell there, you had to give the high priest a cut of your money. <laughs> right? It was like consignment almost. Right? So he profited from this wickedness. Uh, furthermore, it was a racket. Right? Think like mob movie stuff. The priests were the ones who get to determine whether or not your animal is pure enough to be sacrificed. So it was common that they would reject whatever you brought from home and ma basically make you buy from the temple. Ah, there's something wrong with this lamb. Go buy another one over there. The priesthood was corrupt. The high priest was the worst of them all. And the religious elite were profiting off of this whole endeavor. And usually people say those two things. That's why Jesus was so angry with this. No. No. Those are sinful things, but the worst one is this. The, by, far and away, the worst one is this. It was going on in the temple. That's the worst part. Commerce was being done in God's house where he was supposed to be worshipped. Again, most people think, no, nah, man, it's the price gouging, it's the corruption, that that's the biggest problem. No. If you think that, it's you don't understand how important the worship of God actually is. And I mean that respectfully. You've not thought about the holiness of God and the seriousness and reverence that he demands in worship. The worst part of this whole thing is that it was going on in the temple. Hear me. Having a fair business Right? Not, not a corrupt one, but a fair business where you sold animals, items, and exchanged money. That's good. That's actually a good service for them to provide for their fellow Jews. But the travesty here is that this stuff was going on in the temple. The place where worship was supposed to happen was turned into a marketplace. God's worship was profaned. His temple was lightly regarded. His worship was being trampled upon by men. And what should have been a reverent, holy, worshipful atmosphere was turned into a Middle Eastern bazaar. This was a disgrace. So imagine being there for a moment. Imagine the noise. You ever been around livestock? Imagine the noise and the smell. Animals would be all over the place. You say, well, how many animals are we talking about, Dave? Well, to give you an idea, the Jewish historian Josephus recorded that in AD 66, there were 225,600 lambs offered at Passover that year. Quarter million lambs. In addition to the regular sacrifices and Thanksgiving offerings and all the other stuff that people get. This is a huge deal. This is a hu it's tons of animals everywhere. So the court of Gentiles would have been full 
of animals and all that comes with having animals around. And you can imagine the shouting and haggling going on between the buyers and sellers. It would have been the exact opposite of a place of worship. And again, this was in the court of the Gentiles. The court of the Gentiles. So the Gentiles are being despised by the Jews. They would never have dared done this in the court of Israel. Not even the court of women. No, you do this in the court of the Gentiles. The Gentiles are being kept from sincere worship, and nobody cared. Nobody cared. Flatly, no one cared. God's house, his temple, the place of worship was being profaned. The worship of God was being despised. It was being thought little of. The corruption was everywhere. It was in everyone. Now, some worse than others, for sure, but nearly everyone was taking part in this wickedness and trampling on the pure and sincere worship of God. And listen to me, guilt was everywhere. Some commentators, whenever you, if you read their commentaries on this text, they'll say this is mainly about the chief priests and the high priest and their corruption. I disagree with that. From the high priest to the chief priest to the scribes to the sellers, even the buyers were guilty here. How do we know that? Well, look at the text. We're going to get into it in a moment. Jesus kicked the buyers out of the temple. If you were involved in this at all, you were guilty of a grievous sin against God. And you actually prove that your heart was far from him because you have no respect for him. Sin was everywhere and nobody cared. Nobody was crying out for reform. Nobody was challenging anything. People weren't really refusing to, to buy their things from the temple. No, nobody repented. Nobody cared. The profaning of the temple, hear me, this is important. This is how it connects to the fig tree from last week. The profaning of the temple was indicative of the religion of Israel in general. How they were treating the temple and the worship of God was indicative of their religion in general. It was all a show. It wasn't real. There was hardly a true believer to be found in Israel. They didn't care about the sanctity of the temple, which was the holiest place on earth. Again, they, they, I know, so I'm, I'm laboring the point a bit because it took me a while in my studies to see this. I want you to see it as well. They didn't care about the house of God and the true and right worship of, of God by all who gathered there. And, and, and hear me, if they didn't care to respect the place where God is to be worshipped, if they did not respect his temple, then they don't care about true religion at all. That's what we're supposed to see here. Yes, they were in the temple. Yes, they were presenting their sacrifices. Yes, they were observing the feast days and the festivals. That's all true. But their actions show a blatant disrespect and disregard for God. This is a heart issue. Again, as Jesus said in Mark 7, the name of God was upon their lips, but their hearts were far from him. They were externally doing things that they should have been doing sacrifices, Passover celebration, all that. But they have no love for God. And now we come to read what Jesus did. Verses 15 and 16. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and bought in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Our Lord goes into the temple and he goes off. Right? He goes in and sees what's going on. He sees the corruption. He sees the greed. He sees the sacrilege. He sees how God is mocked. He sees how nobody cares about the true and proper worship of the Lord. He sees how the Gentiles are being despised. He sees how the temple of God is being desecrated by sinful men. And he begins to clean house. He flipped over the tables of the money changers and he flipped over the seats of those who sold pigeons which is one kind of animal that was sold there. Jesus begins to put a stop to the madness going on in the court of the Gentiles. And please hear me, he's angry, right? You don't flip tables and chairs with a smile on your face. I've done it. I've repented, but you don't do it with a smile on your face. Our Lord is furious with what he sees going on in his temple. He is God after all. It's his temple. He's angry. Imagine money would have been scattered everywhere. He's overturning the tables of the money chain. That's funny, right? In, in, in John 2, it says he was like, emptying their purses out in the first temple cleansing. Money's everywhere. 
Animals would have been disturbed and are making noise in fear. People would have been making space for him very quickly. And if you've ever seen a man flip over a table in anger, you know that it's just a violent thing in general. A violent thing to behold. This, this would be unnerving to see Jesus do. Our Lord is beyond angry. And as I said earlier, notice that he drives both the sellers and the buyers out of the temple. Anyone involved in this wickedness, when our Lord comes into his temple, is promptly kicked out. Anyone involved, you're gone. And that's because anyone involved in this is, is guilty. If you're involved at all, you're guilty. And this language here is violent, isn't it? He drove them out. He drove them out. I'm sure they didn't want to go. There was money to be made, right? And I'm sure they, even if they were going to go, they would like to gather their things first and collect their money and all that. But Jesus didn't care. He drove them out of the place. In the first temple cleansing in John 2, our Lord made a whip of cords and drove them out with it. And I am not inclined to believe, like some, I think, no offense, people are soft. They think, oh, he just brandished the whip at them. No, he didn't. He drove them out with the whip. He hit them until they left. Some of you are laughing, right? Because it's just, okay, so we're giggling a little bit at this. Why? Because this seems so uncharacteristic of Jesus to hit people with a whip until they leave a place. And yet the text tells us he did. Now, whether or not he used a whip here in Mark 11, the Bible doesn't tell us. But nevertheless, no, he made them leave with force. He overpowered those involved in this sin and forced them out of the temple. Those who profaned God's holy place and God's worship were not permitted to stay. And then verse 16 tells us something. Jesus didn't let anyone carry anything through the temple. That seems a little bit uh, kind of a strange sentence. What is he talking about here? Uh, but from what I can tell from my studies, apparently it had become common practice for those Jews living in Jerusalem. This blew my mind, the disrespect here. They would use the temple courts as a shortcut. The temple complex is massive. If you're carrying something for business, you don't want to go all the way around this huge complex. It's a lot easier to just cut through the courts, especially the court of the Gentiles. Who cares? The Gentiles meet there, right? We don't care about them. So you just cut through. It's a shortcut. And the text says Jesus put an end to that too. He didn't let anyone profane the temple. If you were in the temple, you were there to worship. And if you're not there to worship, Jesus kicked you out. And a quick note here. See here that the common people, again, it's not just the high priest or high priest. It's not just the chief priests and sellers, but common people using the, the Lord's temple as a shortcut, right? The common people are disrespecting the house of God and God's worship. This was an epidemic in Israel. Next to no true worshipers of the Lord were to be found. But Jesus put an end to that on this day for a while. And something that, that interested me as I studied this is that nobody could stop him. No one fights with him. No one fought with him at all. Nobody said a word to him. That the, the text doesn't tell us anyone said anything to him. No one approached him. He just drove them out and they went. And the, and the text seems to indicate that he did all of this completely alone. Completely by himself. One man. One man cleared out the court of the Gentiles of all commerce, all by himself. Please hear me. Nobody stops the lion of the tribe of Judah when he decides to act in judgment. No one stops him. They ran. Nobody dared to contradict him in that moment. Per perhaps, I think it was St. Jerome said this maybe, perhaps there was a glimpse of the wrath of God in his face in that moment. The wrath of the Lamb that John speaks of in Revelation. I think that's likely. I think they saw wrath in him that they had never seen in another human being because as the God-man, he had perfect wrath, perfect righteous indignation, and God is a terrifying one to behold. They see him in his wrath, and that's why he was able to shut this down single-handedly. Please hear me. Fear him. Fear him. And listen, I, I know that there's an element, whenever we read the Bible, there's an element that fear means show reverence and respect and, 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 and the sobriety due to his holy name. Respect the Lord, fear him. Yes, but there's also another element. Be afraid when you consider his wrath. Be afraid. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of God. 
Fall into his hands, what does that mean? Not, not as a father, but to fall into his hands as a judge? Terrifying. You should fear this. You should fear the wrath of the Lamb. He is not the one-sided idol that Americans think that he is. He is not simply lowly Jesus, meek and mild, right? Listen, he is mild, he is meek, he is kind, he is love, he is forgiving, he is patient, he's all of that, but he is also full of holy wrath toward those who profane his holy things. He is the judge of all the earth. John 5, Jesus says, my father judges no one, but he's committed all authority to me to judge. He is the judge of all the earth who, as we confess, is coming again someday to judge both the living and the dead. And he will judge all hypocritical religion. He will judge those who profess to know him, but were only externally religious. He will judge all those who did not have any respect, reverence, or love for God from the heart. He will judge all false believers, no matter how externally religious they are. As the book of Revelation tells us in chapter 1, his eyes are a flame of fire. He sees our hearts. He knows all. As Hebrews chapter 4 says, we are all naked and exposed to the living word of God, Christ, to whom we all must give an account. His wrath in the temple is a picture of his wrath that will come on all unbelievers and religious hypocrites on the last day. And it's a terrifying thing. But not only are we meant to see a foreshadowing of the wrath of Christ in the final judgment, we're also supposed to see Christ's judgment on the temple here. I believe that the actions of Jesus are symbolic. He's driving the wicked out of the temple, and he's being destructive by flipping chairs and tables. He's being destructive. I believe Christ is being prophetic here. Why do I say that? Well, listen, he knows they're going to set up shop as soon as he's gone. He's not stupid. Right, he knows. He knows that he has not corrected the problem long term. He's put an end to it for right now, but as soon as he leaves, they're going to set up shop again. And so I, I must conclude that his actions, while real, do serve a symbolic purpose. Like with the cursing of the fig tree, Jesus' actions here reveal that the temple is going to be destroyed. Just as he overturned the tables and chairs, so also there would not be one stone left on top of another in the temple as Jesus tells us in the Olivet Discourse. The temple was coming down. The wrath of God was on that temple because of their false worship, hypocrisy, corruption, greed, and lack of love and reverence for God that abounded everywhere in nearly everyone in that temple. But let me, let me bring this back around real quick. Why did Jesus do this? Why did he do this? Why did he run those people out of the temple and, and wreck everything that day? Why did he do it? At root, the simplest answer is because they weren't there for worship. They were there for something else. Those who sold were there to make money. Those who bought had no respect for the Lord and were not true worshipers. They were there, please hear me, this is so important for us, especially as Reformed people. I'm serious. This is part of our tribe. Our tribe, I think, needs to hear this often. They were there to obey the letter of the law. But they had no genuine concern for purity and worship. They were there to obey the letter of the law and do all the external things that they knew they were supposed to do. But ultimately, they had no real love for God. That's why Jesus did what he did. Because they weren't there to worship. They were there for other reasons. And so I must ask you as a a piece of early application, why have you come to this assembly today? Why are you here? And I'm not being skeptical of why anyone's here. That's not where this is coming from. I believe the text just makes us ask this question. Why are you here? Are you here to worship the Lord? Are, Are you here to worship because you love the Lord, because he has saved your soul through Jesus Christ? Have you come to present a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving to God through faith in Christ because he's been so kind to you and your heart is bursting with affection toward him? Or are you only here to keep up appearances because you want your family to think that you're a Christian? Because your friends are here? Because you, you, you think it's just, it's just a morally good thing to go to church? 
Are you only here for external things? Please, please hear me. Only true worship that comes from faith in Christ and love for God, only true worship is accepted by God and anything else will receive judgment and condemnation. It's one of the principles we see in this text. But having now seen what Jesus did, we come to what Jesus said. Verse 17. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Our Lord gives a strong rebuke here. It's really strong. He he speaks of what God intended his house to be and what it had become because of the hypocrisy and sin of Israel. And the words recorded for us are no doubt just a snippet and summary of a much longer teaching and sermon that our Lord gave, right? That's what they are. But nevertheless, the words are recorded here as a summary, and they're actually taken from two places in the Old Testament. All right, the, the, the first part about God's house being a house of prayer for all the nations is actually taken from Isaiah chapter 56. Um, and in that chapter, I'll, I'll summarize some, and then I'll read a bit from it. In that chapter, Isaiah 56, a prophecy is being given about what God will someday do in the future after he brings Israel out of exile. Right? And that prophecy is about how God himself will take the Gentiles, the nations, and will gather them to himself. And when he does that, he will accept their worship. And they will be gathered in his house and offer prayer and sacrifices that will be accepted by him. Isaiah 56 verses 6 through 8 says this, And the foreigners, these are not Jews, the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel, declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Jesus declares here, along with Isaiah, that it was God's intention to gather the Gentiles into Israel. Right? Again, this goes back to Genesis 12. In your offspring, all the nations of the world, all the families of the world will be blessed. This is God's intention, is to gather the, the Gentiles in the whole world. It's God's intention that the Gentiles would worship him and know him and love him and serve him just like the Jews. And so God's house, his temple, was meant to be a place that gladly received the Gentiles. It was meant to be a place of worship for both Jew and Gentile. Again, for the world. That's what what world means most of the time in the New Testament. Jew and Gentile. For all who will come to the Lord and love and fear and worship him. They were to be accepted in the temple. But nobody cared. Nobody cared. Flat, like flatly. God's will had been perverted in Israel. The Gentiles were not really welcome in the temple, were they? After all, the nonsense we read about in our text happened in the court of the Gentiles. No one cared about God's will. God's house was meant to be a place of prayer for all the nations, but instead it had become perverted into a place of hypocrisy, false worship, and the despising of the nations. Nobody cared about the glory of God and his being worshipped by the world. And that's why Jesus says the second part of the quotation here in verse 17. But you have made it a den of robbers. This is actually a quotation from Jeremiah chapter 7. And Jeremiah 7 is a chapter that is about the judgment of God that fell upon Israel and the temple prior to their exile to Babylon. And in that chapter, Jeremiah 7, you can read about how the Israelites were so hypocritical. They would commit all manner of oppression and sin and then go into the temple and think that they're safe. Let me read to you Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 8 through 11. The Lord says, Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house? 
which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. That's heavy language. In Jeremiah 7, God condemns Israel for their hypocrisy and their false worship. They did not love him. They were religious, but they were rebellious. And because of that, because they refused to repent and return to the Lord, judgment was coming upon the nation and temple. That's Jeremiah 7. And Jesus here quotes from that text to evoke the reality of judgment that was soon to come upon Israel. The temple had become a den of robbers. And please hear me. So many people misunderstand what Jesus is saying here. The temple becoming a den of robbers is not a reference to the selling of things at high prices. That's not what he's talking about. How do I know that? The den of robbers is not where stealing happens. Stealing happens on the road. The den of robbers is where the robbers live. It's where they take their rest. A den of robbers is a place where wicked men dwell. Jesus is saying here, this place was meant for worship and to be a home for Jews and Gentiles who love the Lord. But instead, this has become a house for wicked people. The righteous don't live here, but the wicked do. That's what he's saying. And taking this all together, I think we see something of what Jesus was teaching that day. The temple will come down. It's going to be judged and destroyed because it's not serving its purpose. It had become corrupted, and soon God would be done with it. Even in just a few days' time, on Good Friday, God would be finished in that place. And the sign of it, please hear me, we miss this sometimes, the sign that God has finished with the temple is the curtain being torn in two from top to bottom. What's that a foreshadowing of? This temple is going to be destroyed. The, the curtain is destroyed. And who destroyed the curtain? God. Top to bottom, it's a supernatural event. God's going to be done with this place in just a few days. And the temple be, or the curtain being torn is a foreshadowing of what the Romans were going to do to the temple in AD 70. But looking ahead, knowing what we know about Isaiah's prophecy and how this actually speaks to the church, we see something more here, I think. A new temple was coming. A new temple would come. And I'm not talking about a third temple that some people claim will happen prior to the second coming of Christ. I don't believe that. But an, a new temple was coming. The sacrifices were coming to an end, but a better sacrifice was coming. The priesthood was coming to an end because a better high priest had come. The old covenant was coming to an end, but a new and better covenant was coming. A covenant full of those and only those who love and fear the Lord from the heart. A covenant full of those who accept and love the Messiah, Jesus Christ. This is the covenant that Jeremiah spoke of in Jeremiah chapter 31. That covenant was coming. A covenant where everyone in it knows the Lord, where there are no hypocrites, a covenant where all those in it have their sins forgiven and know the Lord personally and love him. That covenant was coming. The Jewish temple was coming to an end, but a temple, as Peter says, made up of living stones, a temple made up of men and women who are filled with the Holy Spirit, that new temple was coming. Israel would be judged, yes. God would be done with that temple, yes. But God's purpose for the world was not done. Jew and Gentile will all be gathered together to worship the Lord in his house in faith and love and truth. Something better was coming, and it was coming with the cross of Christ. And now we come to the response of the religious leaders in verse 18. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. They had determined to kill him. The only question was how. We're going to kill him. How are we going to do it? Instead of repenting in sackcloth and ashes, instead of admitting that Jesus was right, they began seeking how they were going to kill him. And they did so because some of the people seemed to be listening to him. Maybe even some of them began to have a stirring in their heart that they needed to repent. 
And the chief priests and scribes could not handle that. They refused to repent themselves, and so they sought to kill Christ. Brothers and sisters, our Lord sealed his fate that day. He sealed his fate that day. And even more in the days to come, he would do so. He knew that this the whole thing would seal the deal. The Pharisees were mad at him. Now he has the Sadducees mad at him. The high priest was a Sadducee. He has the religious establishment out in the country where the Pharisees were very popular. And now he has the Herodians and the Sadducees in the capital city mad at him. Everyone wants to kill him now. He sealed his fate this day. All of the leaders of Israel want to kill him. And he did it anyway. He knew what he was doing. He knew what he was doing. And he did it anyway. And he did it because he knows he must die at Passover. He must die. As Paul says, he came into the world to save sinners. And he came to do so by dying for them and taking the wrath of God in their place. He came to be the true Passover lamb, and so he must die at Passover. He is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he would do it because he had come to save the world, both Jew and Gentile, and gather them to the Lord as one temple to worship him in spirit and in truth. And so he sealed his fate. Now, what does this text say to us today? Now, I admit I had a really hard time thinking about application for us because this text is so much about Israel and God's judgment upon them that came in AD 70. It's very much about that. And though there are probably, hear me, there, there are so many things. Most, most Reformed preachers, whenever they, whenever they preach this text, they, they talk about the regulative principle of worship. Right? Just real quick, that's you don't do church how you want to do it. When you assemble together, you must have clear warrant in the word of God to do whatever it is that you're doing, or you are forbidden from doing it. Amen. Yes and amen. God's very serious about his worship. Ask Nadab and Abihu how serious God is about his worship. They offered the wrong kind of incense, and God burned them to death. God's very serious that we do only what he said. Right? So there are many applications I could make about that right? from this text, and they're right and they're good, but that's not what I want to do. So let me just say this. Let me go as broad as I can here. God is looking for true worshipers. Those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Those who will worship him by true faith in Jesus Christ. Those who will worship him with true love for Christ, for who he is and what he has done to save them. He's looking for those who have a true desire to worship him according to his word. He's looking for those who have a true desire that the world would know and fear the Lord. Friends, hear me. Anything, hear me, please. Anything less than that is false religion. Anything less than that is false worship. And like the temple, it will be burned up and cursed on the last day, along with all hypocrites and false worshipers. So then, my dear friends, let me ask you this. And again, I ask you these questions, not because I'm skeptical about any of you in particular, but because I think the text makes us ask these questions. What is your heart posture toward the Lord? Is it one of reverence and love? Or is your heart just full of cold, dead externals? Again, you give the external form of worship, but your heart's not there. And I ask that because remember, the Jews were indeed in the temple. They were indeed doing, uh, technically doing some of the things that they should have been. They were offering their sacrifices according to the law. They were there for Passover according to the law, but they didn't love God. Not really. So do, do you love the Lord? Are we true worshipers? And, and secondly, this text makes us ask, what is your heart posture toward the world? Do you want the world to come and worship the Lord? Right, which is primarily, this is not about loving your neighbor. This is about loving God. Do you see God as so worthy of worship that you want the Gentiles, so to speak, to come in? Do you love the Lord with such fervency that you care because you love him so much, you care about the souls of others because you want to see them worship him? Or do you relegate the world around you to the court of the Gentiles and not care? 
Brothers and sisters, we must sincerely ask, where is my heart? And where there is coldness and carelessness, we must repent. We must repent. We must forsake it and turn from it and recognize it for the wickedness that it is. And repenting, we must look to Christ. Look to Christ always. It's never by your own works. It's not even by your own repentance that you'll be saved. Why? Because your repentance is imperfect. You're never sorry enough. So repenting of your sin, you must look to Christ. Christ, who was the perfect worshiper in our place. The perfect lover of the glory of God in our place. And Christ, who died for religious hypocrites in our place. And having been cleansed and forgiven in him, we must pray earnestly to the Lord and ask him to make us zealous for his worship and his glory throughout the world. Brothers and sisters, God is looking for the real thing. He is looking for true faith in Christ, true worship, true praise, true love for him and his glory. May God grant each one of us sincere faith that issues in sincere worship. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word that challenges us. God, I pray if anyone here, and I know we're all guilty of it on some level, so I'm praying for all of us. Those of us who are guilty of being cold in heart and only going through the external forms of religion, but our hearts are not there, God, grant us repentance. Help us to see your glory. If we're coldly reading your word throughout the week, coldly reciting the creeds, coldly uh, singing hymns and psalms, coldly listening to the preaching of the word. God, I know we're all guilty of it at some point. Grant us repentance and help us to see that you're worthy of our worship because of who you are and what you've done. And please make us into more sincere worshipers like our Lord who is the perfect worshiper. Forgive us of our sins and conform us more to the image of Christ. Cause us to bear fruit. Help us to love you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.